We're also thankful for a sufficient word. And so if you would take the word of God and turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> we'll see how long my voice holds out, but uh, we're, we're trusting to be able to spend some time in God's word. I trust it will be a blessing. The book of 2 Thessalonians is the Apostle Paul's written discourse to a people that was near to his heart. The Thessalonian church was founded and often mired in great opposition. And Paul wrote this letter to counteract an internal false teaching that the day of the Lord had already come and the believers at Thessalonica had missed it. These believers needed teaching and they needed encouragement. And I trust that we will be able to see that. We'll be able to likewise be blessed as we are once again in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 this evening. If you know me, you know that I like cars. I like many types of cars, but I especially like one particular subset of cars, and this particular subset is known as a sleeper car. Now, if you're into cars, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but if you're not into cars, a sleeper car looks like a regular run-of-the-mill point A to point B vehicle. Both the exterior and the interior of the sleeper appear to be simple transportation. But what is missed is that a sleeper holds a secret. And that secret is high, high horsepower and go-fast items that are added to the drivetrain, the suspension, the electronics. And it transforms that boring car into a blistering fast car. And we have probably all seen and experienced the stoplight drag races on Woodward or around Detroit. And living in Birmingham, there are no shortages of flashy, fast cars. But I always love it when the owner of one of those expensive cars is completely humiliated by the normal, unassuming grocery getter. <laughs> See, sleepers are easy to overlook. Sleepers are underestimated and often underappreciated until that moment when they show their value in smoking tires and embarrassed looks. And as I was thinking about how sleepers, sleeper vehicles, are often overlooked and underappreciated in the automotive realm, I got to thinking about our spiritual lives and how there is likewise an entity that is often underappreciated, overlooked, and in today's American church culture, even maligned by some. I'm speaking of the local church. See, the reality is right now in our American church culture, people, people overlook and belittle the value of the church in their spiritual lives. And this is seen in closed services, and this is seen in sparse attendance. Statistics bear out that we have overlooked church life and instead have sought more flashy organizations or ways for what we think will bring fulfillment. And I believe we do this to our detriment. Some view the church as old-fashioned, out of date, and out of touch. But the church is still the bride of Christ, and in his infinite wisdom, has made the church his representative of the heavenly kingdom on earth. So if that is true... How should we think about our fellow believer? 
And Paul gives for us an example of how we must think and act towards our fellow believer in our passage this evening. So again, let's study 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our text for the evening will be verses 13 through 17, and in a second we'll read that. But we need to understand that since the church is vital, we must cooperate with our fellow believers in a biblical way. And I trust that after our time this evening, we will have a road map. An example given to us by the Apostle Paul of how we should live and interact and think and function within the body of Christ. So let's look at verse 13 and read down to verse 17. Verse 13 says, but ye brethren, nope, excuse me, that's in, I'm in chapter 3. Let's go to chapter 2, Nate. Okay, here we go. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren. Beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. We need to start and understand first that we are called to be thankful for our fellow believers. You see verse 13 And it starts off with Paul saying, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. He was bound. What does that word bound mean? Well, it has the idea that he was compelled. Or you could also say he was under obligation to give thanks for them. And if you were to look at First and Second Thessalonians, both are full of Paul's appreciation for these saints in Thessalonica. Almost to the point where he's almost like tripping over himself to say thank you. And he even says multiple times in these two books that it is good for him to thank the Lord for these believers. Have you ever considered what we have in our church? Now the doctrine is clear. Once a person accepts Christ, he is birthed into the body of Christ. And it has a universal aspect to it. And this is a wonderful reality, but have you ever thought about your role within the universal church? Maybe our thoughts have gone there. But oftentimes, I mean, unless you are a new seminarian who comes out of seminary and thinks he's going to change the the world, we probably don't necessarily think on a macro level. More often, instead, where do we think about our roles within Christianity? We often think of using our gifts within the context of something much more intimate, something much more small, and that is the local church body. In this case, Grace Baptist Church and the people who comprise this assembly. These are the people that you rub shoulders with. These are the people that you are called to use your gifts to edify. And these Christians, the ones around us, become our people. Why? Because they are Christ's people. 
And so Paul is so careful to thank God specifically for the believers in Thessalonica. He also does it often. We are bound to give thanks, how often? Always to God for you. He's always thanking God for them. He even says in, in, in this book, you're supposed to be praying without ceasing. In, in these two books, he got, walks through and talks about how they're supposed to live and how they're supposed to navigate in the midst of opposition. And one of them is rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. And he lets them know this is God's will for them. And what's wonderful is right alongside with the command to pray without ceasing is the testimony or the, 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 the declaration that Paul was praying for them always. He was thanking God. He was praying for them. He was bound for this. But what was he thankful for? Well, he is thankful for, first off, that their salvation glorifies his God. Look at verse 13 again. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Why? Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Think about this. Your heavenly Father is glorified through the salvation of the unsaved. I think we know that. But I wonder if we have become skeptical with the gospel. And what do I mean by that? We probably have lived lengths of time where we have shared the gospel and there have been so many that have denied the faith or have rejected our presentation of the gospel and sometimes we get a little bit gun shy can I put it that way we get a little skeptical and we think okay well fine I'll just share the gospel but you know whatever I don't know if they're going to listen or maybe we've shared the gospel with the same person over and over again and they continue to reject it and reject it and reject it and so you say, well, I'm going to try it again, but I don't, I'm not holding out much hope. And what is Paul doing? He's reorienting their thought process. He's, he's declaring his thought process about them as well. And he says, I am so thankful for you because God hath from the beginning, beginning chosen you to salvation. And then the process through the sanctification of the Spirit and then it happens through belief. And I would say one of the most exciting things for a church is the salvation and discipleship of a new baby Christian. They infuse excitement. They, they infuse wonder and zeal. And as a believer, we should be thrilled when we observe that our God is glorified, especially through the salvation of mankind. It's interesting in this book specifically that these false teachers were trying to dismantle the confidence that the believers had in their standing with Christ. And so Paul goes back and he says, I, I need you to know that I am thankful for you and I'm thankful for the salvation that you have. And in, in that, he ties it and he gives foundation. He gives a rock-solid foundation for them to gain confidence, not in Paul, not in themselves, but in what the Lord had ordained. So look again. Brethren, beloved of the Lord, God hath from the beginning, beginning chosen you. If there is a believer here 
He has been chosen before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful truth. Not only that, then you have the sanctification of the Spirit, the process whereby the Spirit was drawing you. And now it's interesting, each one of us, if we're believers, we all have a story of how the Holy Spirit drew us. And those circumstances can change from person to person. We all, though, come through Christ and Christ alone. But Paul is reminding them, hey, you have a strong foundation. It involves God. It involves the Lord, Jesus Christ. It involves the Holy Spirit. And think about this. The salvation of mankind gives the church stability, steadfastness, confidence in the midst of uncertainty. Paul makes clear that these believers need not think they are outside the faith or that they missed their chance to be included in the end times agenda. Instead, they were chosen before the foundation of the world, and that choice glorifies God. Therefore, Paul is thrilled, and he is thankful for them. So he is thankful that their salvation glorifies God our God. Also, we must be thankful for the part we get to play in a believer's life. Look at verse 14, because he goes through and he talks through the gospel and what happened in the gospel, but now he also includes his part. Look at verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because he links himself into this whole narrative of thankfulness. And lest we think that Paul is being prideful, really he is just thrilled that he has had the opportunity to play some part in the story of the Thessalonians coming to Christ. God saves the soul. We know that. But every soul is saved, soul saved by God was helped by a fellow believer in the process. For the Thessalonians, Paul was the one who poured the gospel into their lives. He was active in being there. And I've said this multiple times from this pulpit. Your walk with God is personal, but it's never private. As 2 Corinthians states, we have all been given the ministry of reconciliation. Are you thankful for the part you have gotten to play in the lives of others who have accepted Christ and grown in the faith? The Apostle Apostle John states in 3 John 1.4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Paul was thankful for the Thessalonians. It's interesting as an application of this thankfulness and the requirement of our thankfulness for others in the, in the body of Christ. This weekend, we said goodbye to a faithful servant of our Savior. A funeral has a way of putting things into perspective, doesn't it? And I wonder how often do we express our thankfulness for the people in the pews around us. There was a time when we went through, uh, my family went through some uh, great loss. I think we lost around 12 people uh, through the span of, of just a few months in, in my 
my close family as well as my extended family. And after losing that many people that you care about, there came a point when I realized I need to let people know that I'm thankful for them. And it really changed how I thought about the people, the fellow believers that are around me. And so sometimes I've, I've maybe, you've even maybe received a text from me that just says, hey, we are so thankful that you are here. We are so thankful for the part that you are playing. Can I say, I say that with a heart of actual thanksgiving to God. We are called to be thankful for one another. Oh, it might feel a little awkward, but we should be expressing that to one another. Our walk with God is personal, but it's never private. We impact others around us, and we should be thankful for the part we get to play in discipling others. So we need to be thankful for our fellow believer. But number two, we also must exhort our fellow believer. You look at verse number 15. After he talks through the gospel, after he talks through the thankfulness he has for these saints, now he goes and he switches to an exhortation. And he says, therefore, verse 15, therefore, brethren, now that I've said these things, here's what I expect from you. Stand fast and hold the traditions by which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. We must exhort our fellow believers. We must be thankful, but now we must exhort. As Paul invested in the Thessalonians, he became steadfastly concerned that they remain spiritually strong and safe from anything that would seek to shipwreck them. Do we care enough and are we thankful enough for the fellow believers around us to exhort them? Can I say this is kind of awkward and maybe a little bit difficult at times. Sometimes we wonder, Lord, how do you want me to exhort? But we see here after the care and after the thankfulness and after the love that he expresses to them, he now stands up and says, therefore, I exhort you, brethren, stand fast. He urges them. He pivots from thankfulness to now urging and what does he urge of these believers? Well, he urges first that they must be faithful to God in solid biblical doctrine. He says, stand fast and hold to the traditions. This word stand fast has the idea to stand firm, to persist, to persevere, to stand fast. Another way you could put it is to persevere in godliness. Now, how many of us have ever been running I remember playing soccer. And just a side note, I enjoy playing soccer uh, because it gives me a reason to run. I don't just like to run, to run. If I'm going to play soccer, I mean, I have a ball that I'm going to chase. I'm going to try to put it in the net. Okay? But have you ever tried running and everything inside you says, I need to stop? Okay? I, we've all probably been there. Everything's crying out saying, you are not smart. Please stop. Um, and yet... It's amazing, in running, most of running is mental. Most of it is you, you talk yourself through and you just say, no, you just keep going. You put one foot in front of the other. We're not stopping. Get it in gear, whatever, whatever you have to say. You just continually keep putting one foot in front of the other and you're talking to yourself the whole time. And Paul stand, or tells these believers, you have to stand 
you must stand fast. You can't give in. You must persevere. If you've ever tried to lift weights, you may have something on your shoulders. And as you, I think of uh, those who, who wear things on their shoulders, and then they do the squats, and then they stand back up. And as they go down, everything in their body is saying, get this off of me. And their mind is saying, no, stay in it. And then you push it up, and it remains on your shoulders for another rep, and another rep, and another rep. And so you persevere in weightlifting. Paul wants these believers to persevere in godliness. Stand firm. And then he continues on. If that's not enough, he also says, hold. Hold, verse 15. Stand fast and hold. That word hold means to hold on to. Have a firm grip of. It means do not discard or let go. It means also to keep carefully and faithfully. Hold on to those things. Don't let them slip. We're to stand fast. We're to hold. What else are we to hold on to, though? Well, the traditions. Now, this is a word that probably in the back of some minds would be like, uh-oh, red flag. Uh, shouldn't, we, shouldn't we eschew the traditions of men? Well, this word tradition actually has the idea of what has been delivered. In essence, it means the substance of the teaching or the doctrine. If we think about it, who was the Thessalonians' believer? It was Paul. And Paul delivered these things to these believers. And Paul was their teacher. And what Paul is now saying is you hold on to those teachings. You hold on to the traditions that you have been taught by me, whether by word or our epistle. We must urge faithfulness to God in solid biblical doctrine. The traditions that we have heard from here. I had a professor who stated that biblical doctrine is kind of the ugly stepsister of gospel ministry. But without, without doctrine, the gospel cannot stand. Biblical doctrine and the teachings of scripture bind us and they keep us firmly planted in our faith. Without these traditions, we are easy prey to any and all false teachers. I wonder this evening, do we care about our fellow believers and the teachers that they listen to, maybe on YouTube or others, other sites? Do we seek to encourage careful interpretation of Scripture? Think about the Bereans for just a second from Acts chapter 17. They had the Apostle Paul standing right there in front of them. And what does Paul say of them, or what does Luke record of them? That they were more noble. Why? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That was with the Apostle Paul standing right in front of them. I wonder, are we like that? Do we caution others in faithful, careful, biblical doctrine? Now, you may say, Pastor Nate, I don't know if I can keep myself on the straight and narrow. Well, in that case, maybe to do this, we ourselves might need some training. 
so that we can then take another through that growth process. When does that happen? Can I say? At Sunday school? At, on Wednesday night? If you're, in the teen, if you're a teen at, at youth group? In Awana? All of these things are meant to help us to know and to be able to grasp the doctrines of Scripture that we be not blown over or wooed away like the Thessalonians were tempted to with these false teachers? Do we caution these, our fellow believer, in faithful, careful, biblical doctrine? We must urge faithfulness to God in that biblical doctrine. But what's the process? The process of this exhortation, it must be active. Look at how the verse finishes, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have taught, or which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. The process of this exhortation must be active, whether by word or epistle. Paul was active in discipleship. He was intentional. He was taking them to these teachings, and he was instructing them in an active way, whether in word, standing in front of them, or by writing them letters. He was discipleship-minded. Consider this. Can I say, all teachers are discipleship-minded. You may have a good teacher, and that person will disciple you into good things. You may have a bad teacher, and that teacher will disciple you into bad things. This week I... uh, reached out to one of the young men that I was able to, to meet down at Seaholm. And I just, I just hit him up and I said, hey man, how you doing? Just been praying for you. And he said, Pastor Nate, things are going great. He's out in Colorado. Things are going great and I'm thinking about going to seminary. And I sat there and I, I responded. I said, that is awesome, but can I caution you for just a second? Make sure you find a good seminary. And a good seminary is one that builds your confidence and your trust in the word and in the gospel. Because there are bad seminaries out there that will pull you away from this. So find a good seminary that will, again, nurture your desire to know God and to know his word. Why? Because the exhortation of a teacher, it will always be intentional. Just make sure you have the right teacher teaching you. And then, by extension, make sure you are the right teacher for someone else. Pushing them and prodding them to faithfulness in this. So this process of exhortation must be active. Paul poured time and effort into those he discipled. A disciple becomes a disciple through intentional acts of teaching and nurturing. And I wonder this evening, are you discipling someone in the faith? Every single one of us will lead someone. You might say, well, Pastor Nate, I'm not really a leader. Well, yes, someone will follow you. Are you leading them intentionally to and through what it means to be in Christ as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? It may take some time. It may take some effort. You may get a phone call in the wee hours of the night. But can I encourage you, it's worth it, and it must be active. 
So Paul was there and he taught in word as well as in an epistle. So we must, we must first off be thankful for our fellow believer. We must secondly exhort our fellow believer. And then lastly, we must comfort our fellow believer. Verses 16 and 17. We have beginning a benediction. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Can I say, I almost started our text with just that benediction. There is a full sermon right there. But we must comfort our fellow believer. This benediction serves as a dedication of these precious souls to their Savior and Lord. Remember, Paul was, was very interested in what was taking place with them, but he also understood who was going to be the one who was going to protect them, and who was going to be the one who was going to nurture them, and who was going to be the one that actually brought forth that growth. It had to be the Lord. And he says, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father. Again, we have all the, the, the parts of the Trinity mentioned through this whole passage. And we have rich, deep teachings that remind these, these readers and us to reorientate our mind away from what they are experiencing and instead back to the person and work of their Savior. We need to see that comfort, the comfort we give comes from our God. These nervous believers need comfort. Real quick, just flip over a couple pages to, uh, to chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1, two, 1 through 2. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind. Or to be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as the day of the Lord is at hand. There's the kind of the scenario or the backstory of what was going on. Paul was talking to a group of believers that were really nervous. And what does Paul do? In this case, he comforts them. He calms them. He settles their heart by pointing them back. To their God. Paul reminds them of God's love. Look back at our text. Verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us. He reminds them of God's love. God loves each and every one of them. It's interesting, sometimes when we go through difficulty or we go through opposition, some of, the, some of the basic things that we know to be true in the light become really hazy and foggy in the dark. We start to doubt, Lord, do you really love me? And what does Paul do? He comforts them by pointing them back to these fundamental truths. God loves you. Comfort comes from God, amazing to think that God loves us, God's love. What else does he point them to? He points to God's provision. Continue on. He hath, he hath, which hath loved us, verse 16, even our Father which hath loved us, and hath given us every everlasting consolation. God has provided a promise of everlasting rest 
and soulless. They need not fear the future then. If we have comfort from our God, we don't need to fear. We need not be nervous. If God loves us and God has provided everything we need, we can be at rest. We have an everlasting rest and solace. That's that idea. It's the the idea that's wrapped up in that everlasting consolation. If you're in Christ, you you can have a confident, restful future. So God's provision. What else does he do? He points them to God's hope. Okay, And good hope through grace. God's nature and work of grace in them results in hope. They can be confident in God's care. Again, sometimes when someone's in the hospital and we're not sure what to say, what can we do? Well, we must comfort them. And what, where does comfort come from? It comes from God. And what can we say to them? We can say, I don't know what to say to you that would be a blessing other than God loves you. God has provided for you everything you need. You have a promise of an everlasting rest and solace. There is a confident, you can have a confident expectation for the future even when we don't know what it looks like. So we must comfort our fellow believer by pointing them to our God. But what does this comfort do? Well, this comfort strengthens a believer towards usefulness. Paul trusts that this comfort will be and encourage will encourage, excuse me, the believer to get active in doing what they need to do to be productive citizens of heaven. He lays out the end, verse 17, the comfort your hearts, and then now also to establish you in every good word and work. You can remain faithful. Why? Because of God's person and work in you. So he calls them to look at who our God is and who we have in Christ and what we have in Christ. And he says, remain, be established in every good word and work. So this evening we've looked at the expectation we have to be thankful for our fellow believer, to exhort our fellow believer, and lastly, to comfort our fellow believer. To wrap this up, statistics bear it out. People view the church with skepticism. Many have a positive view of Jesus, but when asked about how they view the followers of Christ, many struggle to say a lot of positive things about us as Christians. Now, the church is not, is not meant to be a popularity contest. That's not what I'm saying. I understand that we're not here on earth to win that popularity contest. We are called to faithfully preach the gospel and serve our Savior. But granting that point, I wonder if we as believers are living lives that make being associated with Jesus harder than it needs to be. Many who have named the name of Jesus have harmed others even within the walls of churches. Many of us who name the name of Jesus navigate our faith in a deficient manner. Perhaps we navigate this life in fear. Maybe we manifest an unthankfulness for our fellow believer. Maybe we fail to look out for our fellow believer, or if we do look out for them, we do it destructively rather than from a heart of love and service. 
Or maybe we are just a bit harsh in the way we live our lives as believers. We fall short in providing comfort. The church is not a business that seeks to run to peak efficiency. It is a body made up of God's children that seeks to further the kingdom of God so that he would be glorified. What a wonderful privilege we have to be a part of the greatest body of of, uh, an entity on this earth. Maybe we should this evening take the example of Paul to heart and seek to appreciate, to exhort, and to comfort our fellow believers today. Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Lord, thank you for this passage. Lord, it may be difficult when we take a look in the mirror, but Lord, this is what we need to do. And Lord, I don't know what's going on in the body of of believers here at Grace, but Lord, I can say that I desire, we desire, that this would be a place where, where the believers function the way that you want us to function. Lord, that we are thankful for one another. Lord, if we've taken our fellow believer for granted, please forgive us. May we be thankful for them and what they bring uh, to the body of Christ. Lord, if there are some among us that need some exhortation, Lord, would you help us to have a burden for them? Would you help us to step forward in love and service of these fellow believers and exhort them? Would you give us wisdom to do that? Would you give us boldness to do that? And then, Lord, for those of us who need comfort, Lord, help us to come alongside. Help us to lift them to you. Push them to our Savior. Remind them of who you are. So that then, Lord, they can be fit vessels, useful in your hands. So that then, Lord, when you come back, you will find a church that is healthy, that is doing and fulfilling what you have called us to do, that we would be established in every word and work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.